It's good to be with you again. You know, when we, uh, we come here on Sundays, we come as we've been doing to, to sing God's praises and to share as we often do and did this morning in communion and to open this wonderful book and endeavor to see things from God's perspective to learn, as we were putting it, to think God's thoughts in as far as that is is possible for us. And I, I sought to impress upon you this morning that that can be very painful. Uh, God's thoughts are very different to our thoughts, and if we're going down this road of endeavouring to embrace God's way of thinking and to project that, it's, it's embracing a counterculture, a culture that is at odds with prevailing society, and that's going to be painful. Now, um, one aspect of, of, of this is particularly pertinent to our position in this province. We need to examine our attitude towards the very land that we live in. Now, I'm not digressing. The, The people of Israel to this day are very passionate about the, their, their land and the land that they share with great difficulty with many Palestinian people who feel dispossessed and who, who also have passion about that land. Now, I, I'm not in any way going to make an excursion into any political arena. That would be inappropriate from this pulpit. But we are looking these few weeks from this pulpit at this prophecy of Ezekiel. And as you've already heard and we've dealt with this and looked at it, uh, we're looking at a people who are in exile. They are in Babylon. And it is instructive for us to examine carefully the circumstances that led up to their decline and the fact that they are in these humiliating circumstances in exile. Territorial tension and feuding have characterized life in this land of ours. You know all about that. I mean, thank God for a a, a modicum of, of peace and sanity just now, but the tribal tensions... Are, are, are just below the surface. And many of us, even within the family of God, we're, we're not immune to this. Indeed, perhaps we've contributed to those tensions. And we need to repent of that. But you know the sort of thing I'm talking the, about. The, the, the territorial tensions, even as I was driving here from Ballinahinch, you know, red, white and blue curbs, green, white and gold curbs, factional flags, murals, they're uh, ameliorating somewhat now, but all designed to demarcate territory. We're so familiar with this in this province. And while we may not have been those who went out and painted the curved stones or drew the murals or whatever, you know, we know where our sympathies lie. 
We know where we're comfortable. We, we know what side of this ugly tension we, 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 we fit in best. Now, is there any clarity about what God has to say about this? I don't want to see just place this entirely in the history of Ezekiel's time. I want us to think about it in terms of our own situation. In Israel in Ezekiel's day had had retained strong territorial a strong territorial mindset. And indeed up to a point that was God given. Up to a point. But, but now they were dispossessed, they're in exile, their precious land is lying in ruins. And we've got to ask, why? And of course the answer is, is very clear, because they had forgotten or they had deliberately ignored God. But not only God, they'd ignored his claim on the land. His, his claim on the land. You see, this land that we can get so passionate about, it's neither nationalist, nor unionist, Protestant, nor Catholic. We, we, we are reminded, or we need to be reminded, like the Israelites in Ezekiel's time, a message that God gave through Moses, and this is it. The land is mine, said God. And you are but aliens and my tenants. Boy, don't we need to learn that. Not only in the situation that prevails in the Middle East, but here. Last Sunday we sang, This earth belongs to God. The world, its wealth, and all its people. Easy to sing. Very easy to sing. But to do so and then adopt a sectarian stance is just sheer hypocrisy. We are all God's tenants. And Israel, they, they, they discovered, and we need to discover, that God's blessing on us and on our land depend upon how we behave, upon how we treat others, how we treat others who share the land with us, and how often God reminded the Israelites time and time again of their past, and the warnings were explicit and implied at times, but here's essentially what God was saying, you were strangers in the land of Egypt, so watch how you treat each other in the land that I am giving you. Now, let's get back to Ezekiel. Now, there's a problem here. You see, I, I, I'm, I'm in Windsor Baptist, and people are very exacting here. And Jewel Webb, or Sam Webb, on the way out last week, yes, you're responsible for this, Sam, he said, hadn't, um, this whole thing is set in the situation where Ezekiel is really about 30 years of age. This guy's too old. Sorry, Sam. Well, I had to do something about that, and you know the sort of court painters of the ancient times, it's very hard to come by, and photography wasn't all that good in Ezekiel's time. But I did find at great expense uh, a younger Ezekiel. This will please the women. Um, so there you are. And each time, until we get a bit further into the book, I'll, I'll stick with this particular portrait of, of Ezekiel. But, but, but let me be serious. He was discovering that obedience to God 
carried no guarantee of an easy ride. No guarantee at all. Uh, indeed, he was engaged in spiritual war. And so are we. I mean, if we're going to embrace this teaching of God, think God's thoughts, live in this world in a way that God will honor, let's be clear, this is spiritual warfare that we're going to be engaging in. We need to come to terms that victory is certain. Absolutely certain. But the, the war is not yet, fin yet finished and the battle orders can be quite severe. They certainly were in, in Ezekiel's time. Now you may have thought he's forgotten to read the scriptures. No, I haven't. Here's the appropriate time for us to read the passage that's on, our, uh, on, on my, my mind for this evening. We're reading from Ezekiel 3 and I'm reading from verse 22. And then we'll move on into Ezekiel 4, verse 3. And we're just carrying on from this morning. The hand of the Lord was on me there. And he said to me, get up and go out to the plain and there I will speak to you. So I got up and went out to the plain and the glory of the Lord was standing there like the glory I had seen by the river Kibar, and I fell face down. Then the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet. He spoke to me and said, Go, shut yourself inside your house, and you, son of man, they will tie with ropes. You will be bound so that you cannot go out among the people. I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you will be silent and unable to rebuke them for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak to you I will open your mouth and you will say to them this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Whoever will listen, let them listen. And whoever will refuse, let them refuse for they are a rebellious house. Now, son of man, take a block of clay, put it in front of you, and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it, erect siege works against it, build a ramp up to it, set up camps against it, and put battering rams around it. Then take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and turn your, turn your face towards it. It will be under siege. You shall besiege it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. God had warned Ezekiel, you'll remember, don't think that because I'm sending you, they will necessarily listen. Nevertheless, God said to him, be careful to speak my words, the words that I give you. You see, like a prophet, you have got to be my spokesman, Ezekiel. And like a watchman, you've got to warn of impending danger. Now, our circumstances may be much less dramatic than Ezekiel's, but if we have given our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, then let's recognize this, that we have a prophetic role and a watchman role. 
Did, did, did you know that you had a prophetic role? Or is that a bit too far for Baptists? Uh, you know, it's almost dangerous territory. But, but let's examine this briefly in, in the light of Scripture. Because I believe this is something God wants to say to us. First of all, look at the command that's given in the first verse of Corinthians 14. Follow the way of love, and that's been outlined in wonderful poetic language in the previous chapter. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Now that's, we get a bit nervous in this passage of scripture. I remember in Ballina Hinch whenever I decided to work through the two epistles to Corinth, I started in 2 Corinthians hoping God would send Jesus back before I got to 1 Corinthians and then nervously worked through 1 Corinthians hoping I would get a call somewhere else before I got to chapter 12, but it never happened. But here we are. We've got to face this. Now, don't overcomplicate this. Please don't overcomplicate this. We, we, we too often see this gift in, in terms of making some great melodramatic statement, you know, they, they foretelling the future or, you know, thus saith the Lord, that type of situation. We, we don't think of it quite as us. But there's no escaping this. You, if you know Jesus, have a prophetic ministry. But let me earth it in Scripture. We made reference last Sunday evening uh, to, to, to Moses in another context. But, you know, when Moses appeared before God, or God appeared before him at the burning bush and, and spoke to him from that dramatic situation, you'll remember how Moses was reluctant to go, and eventually God got quite stern with him. And, and what he said, and it's recorded in Exodus 7 verse 1, I have made you like a god to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. He will speak for you. You tell me that you're slow of speech, that you have this difficulty of, of, of putting words together, Moses. Okay, then I'm going to send your brother Aaron as your spokesman, as your prophet. And in that sense, I, I, I want to urge upon you to take this seriously, that, that God wants us to exercise a prophetic role in the staff room, in the office, in the factory, in the home, in the school, in the university, just wherever God has placed you. He wants you to be someone who is thinking his thoughts, who is looking at world affairs and interpreting them in the light of this wonderful book and speaking for God, bringing God's point of view to bear in the situations that people are talking about. That's a prophetic role and a prophetic ministry. It's not just something that happens up here. We have been called to, to have this gift of the Spirit of God helping us in the appropriate situations to put God's point of view forward. That is a prophetic role. Now back again to, to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 3.23 we read that the glory of the Lord appeared to him again just as it had before uh, by the Kibar Canal. But then God said, did something that appears to totally conflict with all his former instructions. First of all, shut yourself up inside your house. Now, isn't this strange? 
He's been given a prophetic ministry, but he's now shut up inside the house. They will tie you with ropes and you will be bound. Unable to go out. Very strange. And then God struck him dumb. You will be silent, unable to speak. Now surely this is crazy. This, this just does not add up. God calls this man to go to his people in exile as a prophet and a watchman. And then he puts him under house arrest and says, you must speak my words. And then strikes him dumb. And we've got, to, we've got to learn that, and I know the church is, 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 lead, is endeavoring and the leadership are considering how are we going to do church, how are we going to reach out to this community. Well, let's be clear on this, that God does not operate in accordance with the normal powers of reasoning. Nor does he operate to our timetable. The, the, the biographies of great men and God, not just the wonderful stories that we find here, but they, they give, you know, clear evidence of this. Uh, I, I have a shot there of Hudson Taylor. And some of you, you will know that here's a man who spent a whole year. I mean, he spent several years, but after the first whole year of, of intensive study and endeavoring to write down what he could of translating the scriptures into Chinese, after a whole year of work, the whole effort, you'll remember, was lost totally in a fire in his own premises. And where's God in all of that? That's a mystery. And then I show you here Jim Elliot, well known, one of the mid-century martyrs, carefully observes the behavior and the culture of the Arca Indians, studies them, prays for God's guidance, feels fully called, as no doubt he was, to work among them. And the whole exercise is bathed in prayer, yet on his, almost his first exposure to them, he with several others, speared to death, lying in that riverbed. Mystery, the way, the way God works. But you know, there, there's always a sequel to these stories. And I, I happened to see a sequel to this story some time ago. This man you won't know. He's a personal friend of mine. He's the campus pastor in a university in America where I, I did some teaching on Christian ethics. And I remember this was taken on a day when I went into his, his study and hanging up behind his bookcase was this uh, set of wooden beads. And I said, Stan, where, where did they, they come from? And he took them down, he put them on. I, I, I wanted to take a photograph when he told me the story. He says, Haddon, those were given to me by one of the men that speared this other gentleman, Jim, uh, what's his name, Jim Elliot, to death. And he said, I said, where did you meet him? He says, giving his testimony at a Billy Graham rally. Uh, you know, and, and, and the, you know, the Lord worked among those people. You'll know that. And, 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 and so many of them came to saving faith. And God works in a mysterious way. If we're determined individually or as a church to go God's way, we're likely to face some very strange paradoxical situations. Bizarre, inexplicable God doesn't have to explain himself, but he works on a plane that we've just got to say, Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but you're God, and I trust you. Wonderful truths. 
And if ever, you know, if ever the church needed some justification for the use of drama, we need go no, go no further than Ezekiel. I mean, th this man, we'll get back to the younger version here, but this man, wholly committed to God, and his dramatic behavior is orchestrated by God, and yet he behaves in the most bizarre way. But it was designed by God, and this man is so committed, he's going God's way, whatever it looks like. You know, when Ezekiel emerged, we put those three conditions that God had imposed upon him. But there was a, there was a divine logic behind them. Whenever Ezekiel emerged from his house, people knew he's on God's business. That's the only time he's allowed out. He's on God's business. You, you, you know, the, the ropes that, that tied him there, they were evidence, they bore witness to the fact this man's God's slave. He was dumb until he spoke for God. So the word would get out when, when Ezekiel speaks. He's only allowed to speak when, when he speaks God, otherwise he's dumb. When he speaks God's words, otherwise he's dumb. This guy was committed. He was committed. He was prepared to look ridiculous for God. And, and you know, I ask you, my friends, let's search our heart. Let's take a long, hard look at ourselves. To what extent am I committed to Jesus Christ and this great commission to reach a lost world? How, how seriously am I taking this? There's a great deal of despair out there. People who, who, who really are disillusioned, but very few are, 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 are turning to our church community. And we've really got to be asking ourselves, you know, why is this? I, I, I was endeavouring to counsel and pray with a young man from Ballinahinch quite recently. Uh, and his background is, is really quite strange. But do you know what he was complaining to me? Hadn't he says seven of my friends within the last two years have committed suicide. Seven of my friends have committed suicide. Contemporaries of mine, people I know well. And he said, you know, when, when they were being buried, when the funeral service was taking place, they all came respectably and, and with concern to church. They showed their grief, they showed their sympathy. But he says, Haddon, they won't be back. They see, they see no reason to go back. They see no relevance between the way we do church and, uh, and, and the, the particular needs that they're struggling with. Now, why? Why? Why, why does church not strike them as real? Uh, why do they see so little reality in us? Because, you know, when I read this story of Ezekiel that's couched in, in, a, in a situation that was, what, two and a half thousand years ago and more, I, I, I find myself staggered by the commitment of this man. I was asked a little while ago to, in fact, just shortly after I'd been speaking to Brian, I was asked to speak at the assembly in uh, the high school in Ballinahinch. And, and I really believed that I had some good ideas. So, you know, some good material that, that would go down well with the, the young people there. Uh, and I, I just couldn't get peace. 
I, I, you know, the, the, the ideas were good, and I believe the stories would have gone quite well, and they were soundly based in Scripture, but I could get no peace. And I'm not, I'm not claiming that God spoke to me in, in an audible voice, but it seemed to me as I thought of what Brian had been sharing with me and as I prayed about this, and I wanted to be real, do you know what God seemed to say to me? Hadn't go and apologize to those young people. Go and apologize for my church. Tell them, admit that you're letting them down. Be honest with them. Tell them you're sorry that the devil is having, you know, greater success in getting his message across to them than you and your fellow Christians are. And I was ashamed. I, and, and, but I knew that what I was doing was right. And there were maybe 400 young people out there. And that assembly hall was still. They took me seriously. I had a lump in my throat. I was feeling bad. Letting those young people down. We've got to be serious about this. Satan peddles poison. And then he blames, the, he blames God when people get sick. He leads people down avenues of despair. And then he says, no God of love would allow this sort of situation to prevail. Subtle lies. And yet people find Satan's lies more persuasive than the message of salvation. Satan's commercials more convincing. You know, shame on us, shame on me. We need, to, we need to be serious. God knows we want better, but you know, Ezekiel was committed. He was committed. Fully committed. And he needed to be because God required him to, to do some very strange things as part of his, his ministry. Symbolic actions by the prophets of the Lord were not uncommon. I'm sure even as I, I say that, you, you, you can recall, you know, you remember how on one occasion uh, the hem of Samuel's coat uh, tore off as, as King Saul caught hold of it. And immediately, somehow Samuel was given guidance by the Spirit of God that, that this is the way, Saul, that your kingdom has been torn, going to be torn away from you and given to, 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 to David. And you remember how uh, King Jehoash visited old Elisha near the end of the prophet's life and Elisha got the king to, to strike the ground with a bunch of arrows. Three strikes, three victories. Why did you not strike it more? Jeremiah dramatized his message of ruin against Judah by smashing a, a brand new ceramic jar while crowds were watching. Powerful symbolic action that had an impact that words could not convey. Now you can be sure that word got around Tel Aviv that Ezekiel was acting very strangely. Certainly, but he was only doing what God asked him to do. Witnessing for us is very tame, very undemanding by comparison. 
And I'm not suggesting for one minute that, that we become outlandish just to draw attention to ourselves. That, that, that's not the implication of what I'm saying. But perhaps we need to be more creative. You know, how we did church 20, 30 years ago is not going to work in today's society. principles don't change, the values don't change, but the strategies do. And I want to ask you, have you got targets? Now, I'm not even thinking of the church, I'm thinking of you and me personally. Have, have we got actual, tar- are we deliberate about our witnessing? Or does it just happen by accident? Ha- have, have, you got, have you got targets? Are you actively seeking God's guidance to be deliberate in your witnessing? Are there specific people that even now, if you were asked, you could say, yes, they're on my list, I pray for them, I'm endeavouring to tactfully and as systematically as I can witness to them. If I see a book that that would be helpful to them, I buy it. Have you asked God for a strategy for your own personal witnessing that you might be effective for God? Or is it just hit and miss if it happens... It happens. This afternoon, uh, for about an hour, we had a a seminar with um, Roy Searle. And he was telling us that he he was having a walk near Lindisfarne recently. And uh, when he was walking, he was with Richard Foster. I'd love a walk at Lindisfarne or anywhere else with Richard Foster. I'd just love to tap into the man's thinking. But nevertheless, Roy was saying they were walking together, and Richard Foster stopped and said to him, Roy, what are God and you doing together right now? Wow. If somebody asked you that question, what are God and you... Remember, he is partnering with you on reaching out with this glorious message of the gospel to others. Are we actively engaged in that partnership? What is God in you, or what are God in you doing at the moment? You know, no doubt there were those in Tel Aviv who thought that Ezekiel had lost the plot. No doubt there were. He, he took a big clay slab a primitive sketchboard, and with a writing stylus he draws an outline of the city of Jerusalem on it. He then builds sort of model siege works and ramps and battering rams around it. And, you know, it's almost as though he appears to have returned to a second childhood and playing some sort of war games. And then he takes a large... Uh, a griddle pan and he sets it up as a barrier between himself and the model of the besieged Jerusalem and then he lies down with his face towards it and he must have felt like a wally I mean this is strange behavior but these were God's instructions 
And there was much more, you know, if you take time to, because we may move on in the book, but there was much more to the dramatic sequence and it went on for a long time and Ezekiel lived on starvation rations and he had to shave his head and do strange things with the shorn hair. But essentially, God was saying through him, a barrier has come up between me and my people. And the result is disaster. Now we could conclude, well, that's an interesting bit of ancient history, Haddon, and just leave it there. But the Holy Spirit has preserved it. Uh, And he draws it to our attention this evening on the 24th visit of February 2008 in Windsor Baptist Church. He preserves it. He wants us to reflect about barriers that have come up today that are impeding blessing. Barriers that explain the the drip feed only. When God, by his Holy Spirit, wants to do much more. And I know this has become a theme, and it will be for the... Because I long for this. A great movement of the Spirit of God. Barriers that account for the relative powerlessness in the Western Church. But barriers that are accounting for a relative powerlessness in me. I don't want to just see this as something out there. I want, oh God, show me. Me personally. Indifference. Is church just something we do? Are we here in order to be empowered and strengthened to go out there and live for Jesus effectively? Materialism gripped the Western world and we're part of it. Infiltrated the church so that we too are gripped by this. Legalism. Oh, there are things that I I recognize that are very clear and fundamental and, uh, you know, they're not negotiable. But, oh, sometimes we can become so legalistic. Sectarianism. Somehow we need God to get it out of our system. And and even denominationalism. Selfishness. So much part of modern thinking is, is, is me and this cult of the individual. And we want to be doing community because God is community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right from the, before there was time, welded together in love. God is love, not is, or has rather, but is. This, this cement that unites the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that He wants to cement us so that the world that has become so individualistic might look into the church and see community as it ought to be. People who love one another. People who care for one another. People who weep and cry in accordance with the needs and the situations of each other. Lust. Very real. Peddled so effectively. The internet full of the food that feeds this sin. Unforgiveness. How we need to recognize that, you know, sometimes within our evangelical circles, we've got a a false view of this as as though somehow I've got to wait. I stand on the moral high ground until the person who has offended me, until they're sorry, and then I can express, that's not the Bible's way. 
Not at all. We're confusing reconciliation with forgiveness. But Jesus, even as they nailed him to the cross, Father, forgive them. Where's the repentance there? And I'm meant to be extending that within the family of God and outside the family of God, not holding grudges. And one could go on pride and unbelief. What's your barrier this evening? My time's gone. But what's your barrier? You see, we erected it, but, but God, by his, his grace and his, his mercy, will help us to remove it. It may be a huge obstacle, but it may be something that's just beginning to form. But let's be sure of this. There are barriers that are standing between us and the great blessings of God. And we want to be asking God to open our eyes to these. Have you stopped laying up treasure in heaven? Has, has your Christianity gone just stale? How we need God to revitalize, to excite us again. Need to put him back on the throne. Need to take this word and enjoy it again. And if it has gone stale to us, then ask God to, to excite us again. Get him back in the driving seat. Need to get back with great regularity here. I'm so glad that I'm in a church where we come to the table of the Lord on a weekly basis. But when we come here, is it making a difference? Are we really catching the message of why God wants to bring us here? To realize here is an example of the way I want you to live for a lost world. He who was at the very center of the worship in heaven and he divests himself of all that. Born of a woman. It's, it's amazing. And he wants us to take something of that beautiful humility and compassion and exhibit it, yes, and then go out there and live it. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never come to the cross. And, you know, if... The life of those of us who know Jesus has been an inadequate representation of our Savior. Forgive us for that. But I point you to him this evening. And I ask you to look up into his face and realize that no one has ever come to him and acknowledged their need of him and their sin and been turned away. And that's the strength of our message. There's forgiveness. And there's life. And there's righteousness, His righteousness. And there's an eternal hope. The best has yet to come. A day is coming when every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess that He's Lord. And how we need to get excited about that. And go out and live the message that we seek to proclaim. Bow with me as we, as we close in prayer and then sing that, that great hymn together, Be Thou My Vision. Lord, take these stumbling, inadequate words, I pray. And Lord, you know that's not false modesty. You, you're the only one who can make this real. And I just pray that somehow you would open up our minds and our hearts and our spirits to the, the great truths of your word. And get us excited again about what Jesus has done and is still going to do because there's still that wonderful day of final delivery when you put the, the, the final touch on what Jesus won at Calvary.
new heaven, a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Wickedness put down forever. Equity and harmony and justice. Oh God. And yet, Lord, the horror of that day for those who have sided permanently with Satan. Oh God, we pray. Give us that capacity to sound the warning from the watchtower and to go out with arms outstretched in love that others might see something of the beauty of Jesus in us. To this end, we seek your face. Amen.